Hi there, and thank you so much for tuning in to Asking for a Friend, a podcast that covers all those topics relating to sex, intimacy, and relationships that you might feel a little too embarrassed to ask about. I'm your host, Katrina Buffard, and I'm a clinical sexologist, psychotherapist, and sexuality researcher. Just a warning, this podcast may contain conversations of a sexual nature, and so if there are little ones around, it's best for you to turn off and listen later. This episode is sponsored by Desire, South Africa's leading sexual health and wellness store. Very sneaky little discount. Stay tuned to the end of the episode. It's the final guest episode in season two, and I'm finishing off with an extraordinary guest. Dr. Laurie Mintz is a therapist, a professor at the University of Florida, teaching the psychology of human sexuality, and a highly regarded speaker and author who's dedicated her career to female pleasure, closing the orgasm gap, and promoting sex-positive conversation and education among the students she's taught. She's the author of the hugely popular books, Becoming Cliterate, Why Orgasm Equality Matters and How to Get It, as well as A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex. I'm so thrilled to talk to you today, Laurie. You, you've, you've been on my list of people to talk to for, for a while. Long ago, hearing you on other podcasts, hearing you know hearing you talk about your amazing book the incredible research you've done your your list of your list of accolades and your list of just just sheer experience is really in, impressive and when i heard uh, when i saw you and and Kate Moyle do your instagram live i think it was sometime last year that was when i i just decided i had to speak to you because i know that my listeners really really need to hear about the incredible research that you've done and the awesome work that you continue to do so when you were growing up did, the, did you realize this was what you were going to be doing in in your in your life and in your career <laughs> not at all um and thank you for your kind words about my work when I was growing up, I knew I wanted to be a psychologist. I always wanted to be a psychologist, but sex, being a sex therapist or was not on my radar, but I was raised in a really sex positive atmosphere. My mother was unusually open and comfortable with the topic. So I think the combination of that and realizing as I've seen clients over the years that whenever I would ask someone, do you have something to talk about about sex? By and large, the answer was, yes, I do, but I wouldn't have brought it up if you didn't ask. And that's what led me to get more and more training and thinking and in terms of being a sex therapist. Well, we see that so often, don't we, with the clients we work with. I mean, you are actually unusual in being brought up in a sex positive home and massive kudos to to your your caregivers, your parents, I'm assuming, because that is so unusual. Even in this day and age, it's strange for me, not strange, I suppose, but just out of the ordinary to have a client say that they were raised in a sex positive home. And so there's an openness and a natural curiosity and a positive attitude around sex. And that obviously made a big difference for you. And, and do you see that with the clients you work with or people you've spoken to when they've also had a sex positive upbringing? Absolutely. I think you're so right. It's so rare to have a client who or a friend who was raised in a sex positive environment. For most of us, it's either very overt, negative in, you know, messages about sex, 
or no messages at all, but like a shameful silence that still invades one's being. And so, yeah, I think it's really unusual. And I think a lot of the work that we do as therapists and sex educators is to help people let go of the shame and negativity that they were raised with and substitute more empowerment and more positive information. Yeah, absolutely. And and the shame is the stickiest of the emotions. As I say to my clients, it's it's the, the stickiest and the hardest one to shake, but it's the one that I so often see associated to one's experience of sex. So how was it that you got into the work that you, you've been doing, particularly some of the incredible research that you've done? I mean, you've published so, so many papers um, on such incredible, relevant topics. And I'm so glad that you then published a book because what I often see is that you and I will have access to incredible research, um, uh, you know, journals and, and academic studies like the ones you've done, but that doesn't then get translated for the general public to be able to understand and read and connect with. So I was thrilled to see, um, you know, a few years ago that you had your book. How did this all happen? Where did it come from? Well, the, my book came from my students, honestly, they were my inspiration. Um, I teach the psychology of human sexuality at the University of Florida, hundreds of students a year. And what was really surprising to me when I first started teaching them was how little information they had on female pleasure and um, how, how like a whole body of knowledge really had been lost to this generation. And when I started teaching about the orgasm gap, which is, you know, the consistent finding that when cisgender men and women get it on, the women are having way fewer orgasms than the men are. Like this wasn't just a concept, right? These, the, my students were able to tell me stories, express pain around this, fear that something was wrong with them. And so I started teaching to female pleasure to close the orgasm gap. And I would get the most wonderful notes from my students, like, thanks to your class, I'm orgasmic. Thanks to your class, my girlfriend's orgasmic. And that's what inspired me to think, I want to put this out there beyond my classroom and write this book for to empower um, women sexually in general. And in the time that you've been teaching, have you continued to see or have those same experiences where the same narrative comes through your door? with the students and leaves as a different narrative? Yes, 100%. You know, and I, you know, I always say that my goal is to make my job obsolete. Like, <laughs> it's not a good business model. <laughs> no, it's not a good business model, but it's a good cultural model. Absolutely. You know, I want to keep talking about female pleasure and the orgasm gap until people are like, oh yeah, of course we know that. We don't need to be taught it, but I don't think that's going to happen until sex education changes, at least in our country. Um, and probably more broadly like that, we have to start teaching young people about pleasure, about the clitoris, about positive sexuality. And um, so until then, I think we've got our jobs uh, out, you know, <laughs> we got big jobs to correct all the negativity that people pick up. Yeah, we, we will always have work, actually, I think, which uh, it's funny, I talk to, I say it often in, in episodes, and I talk to clients about it often, that if sex was easy, 
I wouldn't have a job if sex just happened, if pleasure just happened. And again, when I say sex, again, for my listeners, I mean everything that we do sexually, not just intercourse. It, it, we, we, you and I wouldn't be talking and this podcast wouldn't exist. So it's, it's weird. I, I hear you, right? Not a good business model, but it's an, it would be a wonderful cultural model. That, that word cultural is such a massive, it has such a massive impact on it. And I love that you're in the States and I'm in South Africa because we come from two very different cultures, but there are so many similarities. I mean, globally, the, the, the way that we are impacted culturally when it comes to sex, there is unfortunately the standard globally where sex is shamed, pleasure, particularly in women, is shamed. Sex is often spoken about purely for conception, reproduction. And so can we talk a little bit about the cultural component of, of this orgasm gap, as you've named it? Absolutely. And I love that we're talking across country lines, too, because I think it's so interesting to, to see what is the same and what is different. But in terms of the U.S. culture, and I, you know, my book, Becoming Clitorate, is a combination of cultural analysis and self-help. So to close the orgasm gap culturally and in individual bedrooms. But in terms of the cultural piece, there's so many reasons that contribute to the orgasm gap. Slut shaming, you know, shame about sex in general, women's body self-consciousness during physical intimacy. The list goes on and on. But the number one reason is our cultural ignorance of the clitoris, which is women's most reliable route to orgasm, and our overvaluing of penetration. You know, we use the word, I love that you just said, hey, by sex, I mean everything. But generally, that's not what people think of. We elevate intercourse, like by using the word sex and intercourse is which as if they're one and the same, using the word foreplay for all that comes before, and that's men's most reliable route to orgasm, not women's, but even movies, everything is just set up to show intercourse as the most reliable route to orgasm and ignoring the clitoris. And that is the number one reason for the orgasm gap. I, I can't think of one popular movie where the clitoris features in a sex scene. I, I literally can't think of one. I know that probably that would not be allowed to be shown on, you know, in mainstream cinemas and on, on mainstream TV at primetime, but it, you're absolutely right. It's just, even just movies and kids, you know, kids and adolescents, it's often the first, the first visual representation of sex that they get. Um, and then obviously we've got porn, which that's a whole other topic in itself, which is a massive issue if that's your your sex education. But the clitoris is never, never included. So can we talk a little bit about the, the title of your book and why why the title Becoming Clitorate? Yes, because exactly what we're talking about. It's a play on words, the clitoris and literacy, which is knowledge. And so it's really about becoming knowledgeable about women's most reliable route to orgasm, clitoral stimulation, and being able to talk about it, being able to make use of it sexually. And um, although I must give a shout out to Ian Kerner, who wrote the book, She Comes First in 2004, which is an oral sex how-to manual. He is the one that coined the term clitorate and clitoracy 
And he was generous enough when I called him and said, hey, I'm writing this book and this is what I want to title it. He said, of course you can use the word because the more people that use the word, the better. I'm so glad he he was so open to that because it's it's such a powerful title. Um, and I love your play on words. And that gap in our knowledge is massive. And we've spoken a little bit about the the origins of that of the gap. So is knowledge the way to close the gap? It's part of the way to close the gap. You know, that, and it's what, what I mean by that is research shows that when we teach women about their clitoris, they become more orgasmic in self-pleasure or masturbation, but it doesn't, doesn't transfer. It doesn't close the orgasm gap in heterosexual partnered sex. For that, we need more than knowledge. We need belief and empowerment that our pleasure is equally as important to to our partners instead of this narrative of if it's good for him, it's good for me. We have communication skills to be able to tell our partner what we want. Um, we need mindfulness skills to immerse in the pleasure of the moment instead of like having our brains go, oh my gosh, am I going to come or is he bored? So yeah, knowledge is the foundation, but it, we need more than that. I mean, so so where where do we even start? So if you if we've got somebody listening who a, a woman, you know, somebody who identifies as a woman, a cisgendered woman who's never had an orgasm before, let's say she's in a heterosexual relationship, all of her friends are telling her they're having orgasms. Where where does she start? Yes. Well, first of all, um, the fact that she's wanting to ask the question is the best start of all that she wants it. Then I would say that, I mean, I would really tell her to, to take the steps that I outline in my book. The first is get to know your own genital anatomy, you know, get a good picture like the one I have in my book or others, take out a mirror, identify your parts, learn your anatomy. It takes some effort to do that, you know, but it's, if you don't know what you have, you cannot use it well. And then the next thing is to believe you're entitled to pleasure, work with your mind, stop that busy brain um, while you're in bed, but think positive thoughts when you aren't, you know, so mindfulness in the bedroom and sex positive thinking outside the bedroom, um, sexual communication and um, changing the sexual script from foreplay just to get her ready for intercourse, intercourse male orgasm, sex over, change the scripts. And I provide some, and so does Ian Kerner and many others of scripts that are turn-taking or that equally value clitoral stimulation and penetration. So you, for me, you're really speaking to having, let's the said woman empower herself sexually in order to improve, heighten, change her experience of sexual pleasure when she's with her partner. But, you know, in empowering herself, it makes me think about masturbation and how for women pleasure is a learned response. And so many women, you touched on it there, they haven't even looked at themselves in the mirror because there's so much shame associated to this part of their body. There's detachment from that part of their body. It's thought of as as a part of them that is is just there for reproduction. It's got function. It doesn't have form. And it's, it's, I mean, we come back to that idea of shame and how we have to really dismantle that shame 
and face that shame kind of head on in order to overcome it and discover the incredible ways in which we can experience sexual pleasure. So for a woman, when it comes to masturbation, I mean, there are so many different techniques and ways in which to masturbate, but obviously your book, Becoming Clitorate, we're talking about the clitoris. I think something that's really surprising for women is that when I say this, I know that a lot of women are shocked, but the majority of women do not climax during sexual intercourse. And yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean, I got so excited. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go go for it. If you got so excited, I want you to dive right in. (laughs) Well, when I was saying, what do we do? I don't remember if I included masturbation, but I definitely should have. It's a chapter in the book that what's really essential to know is that First of all, every woman's genital nerves are positioned a bit differently. So you have to figure out what works for you. Some have more, you know, nerves to the right of the clitoris, some to the left, some like to be touched right on the hood. And yes, that um, some statistics that I think are really important is that only 4% of women, 4% say their most reliable route to orgasm is penetration. And the rest either want clitoral stimulation alone or coupled with penetration. But here is something fascinating. Research has shown a couple of studies that when women pleasure themselves, less than 1%, less than 1% do so by exclusively putting something in their vagina. I mean, that tells it all, right? But then we get with men and we expect to orgasm a different way and to me, the most essential advice, although underutilized, is the best way to orgasm with a partner is to get the same type of stimulation you do when you're alone. But when we're alone, we we give ourselves external stimulation. And then we get with men and we think we should not need that or not need as much as of it or orgasm a different way. And that's just so essential. I, I almost feel like I have to repeat what you've just said, that only you said only 1%. Less than 1%. Less than 1% of women will reach climax from vaginal penetration or stimulation on their own. They're, they're not, I mean, less than 1% are going for vaginal stimulation. So that Alone, means yes. that over 99% of women are, are stimulating themselves in other areas and usually the clitoris. And yet... Yes. We then bring in a partner, and actually this is quite funny because I've had this conversation with a client today. My client was expressing that the the, the frustration of her her partner not knowing what to do, and I hear this all the time. So this client, the next client, all all of our clients, we often hear this. Now, how is your partner going to know what to do if you're not showing them? Because, again, his model is of penetration. That's what works for him when he masturbates his hand is over his penis or he's got a a toy, a masturbator over his penis, his penis is inside a vagina perhaps or an anus. So that's, there's something surrounding the penis. But when we think of female pleasure, that statistic is mind blowing for me because I think that when women hear this, I'm hoping it's going to give them that little push to say, oh, I do actually have to show him what works for me and where and when and how. And you said something earlier as well that was important that 
every single woman's nerve endings are positioned slightly differently. So some women like it to the left, some women like it to the right, some women look at top and bottom. There's such variation again. So that's a learned response. It's, it's just absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And I think you're getting at another really important point when you talk about how men pleasure themselves. If, if you think about how men pleasure themselves in the stimulation that they get from intercourse, they're very similar. But if you think about the way women pleasure themselves in the stimulation of intercourse, they don't look anything alike. And that's the problem. And we have to take the way we pleasure ourselves to our partner or sex by showing our partners, telling our partners, or doing it ourselves. I tell clients all the time, it's not less sex. If you reach your hand down or your vibrator during intercourse and pleasure yourself, it doesn't make it less sex. It's just as much sex. So show, tell, do yourself, but make sure you're getting the clitoral stimulation you need during partner sex especially with a partner with a penis. And that's where the problem is. We know it's, this is happening in lesbian sex. It's just not happening in heterosexual sex. I was, I was reading some really interesting research about, um, about penetration and about pleasure in, in heterosexual and same sex relationships. And I mean, the levels of pleasure in same sex relationships are so much higher because penetration is not the focus. And that's, I think surprising for some people to hear in in same-sex male relationships too. I think there's this misconception that it's all about penetration, you know, anal penetration, and it's not. So when the focus is not on penetration, when the focus is much more holistic sexually, pleasure is heightened. But I want to jump back to something you said, to tell your partner. Now, most people are, are, are uncomfortable with the word pleasure and sex, let alone the words masturbation and touch me on my clitoris. So <laughs> how do we how do we help people just take that step into that slightly uncomfortable space or, or help them create a language when we don't really have the words? We do it, but we don't talk about it. Yeah, I, I think that's such an important topic. Um, and I always tell people semi-jokingly, but it's true that I guarantee you it is much easier to learn to talk about sex than to expect your partner to read your mind. Um, (laughs) It's going to have a higher success rate. Um, So I think it's, it's hard. It's scary. I acknowledge that if you're uncomfortable talking about sex, um, I also love to share the result. This one study that found even just being comfortable saying the word clitoris, women who are more comfortable with the word have more orgasms. So, I mean, I think it's really a believing you have a right and then learning communication skills. And this is why in both Becoming Clitorate and my other book, A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex, I have full chapters on communication, both general communication and sexual communication, because we don't learn either, but people think sexual communication is this whole different thing. And it's not, it's just a subset of good general communication. I want, I need having a talk outside of the bedroom. There's so many ways. And, you know, I honestly have rarely, rarely, and I don't know about you, I've rarely seen a conversation go poorly. If uh, most men 
even though we've got these stereotypes, they don't care about female pleasure. They mostly care very deeply. They've just been misguided. And so, you know, they'll probably be relieved to have a conversation and to hear what a woman wants. So I just love to give big pep talks to anyone who's out there listening that, you know, take the dive. It's like standing on the edge of a diving board and you're scared to go in. But once you do, you will find it's a quite pleasant swim. Just take the plunge and have the conversation. I think that I saw research not so long ago that that looked at men's sexual subjective sexual satisfaction and they reported higher levels of sexual satisfaction in pleasing their partner than they did in receiving pleasure themselves. And men want in heterosexual relationships, they really, really want to to be a part of their partner's pleasure. I think what you've said is such a valid point. I think we're so frightened or ashamed or embarrassed or fearful to step off the edge of that diving board into the swimming pool. But once we're in it, we actually realize it's quite pleasant and it wasn't so bad after all. So often for so many of the people that we work with, I'm sure um, you have the same experience that it's so much worse in our head than it is in reality. And once we name it, we often think that that will give the shame more power, but actually that takes away power from the shame. So when you are expressing and when you are communicating, not only are you able to get your your sexual needs met, but you are taking away the power that the shame holds on over you when it comes to sex. I could not agree more. Really well said. Exactly. By talking, we're releasing shame. Mm. So, I mean, language then obviously does have a big impact on sex because you were talking there about the clitoris and how uncomfortable people are to say the word clitoris. But I mean, clit, clitoris, they're easy words for me. They're easy words for you. I could say them as easily as the, you know, fish I'm having for dinner tonight. It's, it, sex is an easy, easy language for me to speak. And there are lots of words that are used in slang for sex, for certain you know, anatomical parts, the penis, the vulva, even though people often get that confused with the vagina. Vagina's inside, vulva's what we see on the outside. But the clitoris is is kind of on its own as this, it's always just left on the side as if it doesn't exist. Um, there aren't really as many slang terms for it. Um, and and I guess it's it's kind of like I suppose there are lots of slang terms for the for the, to, the word masturbation and people don't really feel comfortable saying, I'm going to go masturbate. I'm going to jerk off. I'm going to go touch myself. There are other euphemisms for it, but clitoris is the one little word and the one little body part that doesn't, it doesn't fall into any of those categories. What happened? Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that. And this is, I could go on about this topic forever. Cause I think the language we use has it, it both reflects and perpetuates the problem of inattention to the clitoris. And while at least in the English language, there's more nicknames in, in the U S for the penis than any other word in the, in the dictionary, there's hardly any names for the clitoris. And You know, in fact, when I started writing this book, I initially got the idea by the idea of, well, there's all these nicknames for the penis, you know, dick, you know, that that actually used to be a person's name. Now we don't even know that because it's become synonymous. So I, I started the seeds of this started with this idea. Well, maybe if we had a good nickname for the clitoris that we were comfortable with 
that it would get more cultural significance. Um, that that part of the book became just a few pages, really, in the my language analysis chapter. But I just think that our inability to talk about it, to give it attention, it all comes back to seeing seeing it as unimportant because it's not involved in intercourse. Yeah, I mean, anatomically, it gets missed in in missionary position, in doggy style, in all of these um, popular sexual positions. It just it just gets missed, and that's you. You made a point earlier about reaching your hand down or using a vibrator doesn't make it any less sex. And I will say to clients as well that in, engaging your brain in fantasy is only going to heighten your sexual pleasure. If, if you're doing anything during sex that heightens your sexual pleasure, that's safe, sane, and consensual, what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. Actually, that's probably a really good thing for you if you are experiencing a heightened sense of pleasure then. So I feel, I feel, I mean, there's, there's, it's so silly to say this, but like sadness for the clitoris because it's the most incredible organ. It's the only organ in the human body that's only designed for pleasure. Men don't have that. Cisgender men don't have that. Women have that. And yet it's so, so underutilized. Absolutely. And something you just were saying earlier really, you know, reminded me of, you know, we, we are so, you know, even these magazine articles, at least here in the U.S., you know, we see all these articles, best sex position for oh. her orgasm, which by sex, they mean intercourse, and they don't even mention the clitoris at all. And if those positions work, that's if they work because the woman is getting her clitoris stimulated indirectly by rubbing it against a partner's body part you know, so those, those articles, once you see this, you can't unsee it. And it just drives me crazy. These best sex positions for her orgasm position. And they imply that if any woman can orgasm from penetration, if you just do it correctly, find the right position. And that is just not true. It, it couldn't be further from the truth. It, it's the same here in South Africa. So culturally, we've got a lot in common. And it, it's it's a it's it's an it's a, an experience that in all the time I've been doing this I've done a lot of media work it it grates me when I'm asked to comment on a, an article of the the five best ways to you know have sex again sex being sexual intercourse it's super super frustrating because it restrains us to that narrative of sex being performative excluding pleasure excluding the clitoris excluding women's experience being learnt far more than men's. I think men's is, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to take away from it, um, but it is easier for men to experience and discover sexual pleasure than it is for women. It's also less shamed and less stigmatized. So that that model of performance versus pleasure, it's something I, I always speak to clients about. I speak about in workshops, in my podcast. How do we shift that in a relationship particularly where let's say it's a heterosexual relationship and it feels very one-sided and she feels very unsatisfied. Do we go back to the things you spoke about earlier in terms of knowledge and empowerment and communication and, and that sort of thing? Yes, exactly. I mean, it's, I have done workshops. I'm, I'm guessing you've had the same experience where I've had women like say, oh my gosh, 
like I've been faking orgasm for 30 years. One time I had a woman say this to me, what do I do now? You know, do I tell him? And I said, you know, that's a very personal decision, but you can, but you can get the stimulation you need now without telling them in the past, you can sit down outside the bedroom and say, Hey, I just listened to this great podcast. You know, I just read this great article or book. And I realized I learned that most women need clitoral stimulation to reach orgasm. And I've been not, I've been feeling a little embarrassed about that, but now I'm not embarrassed anymore. And like, I want to incorporate more of that into our sex life. How do you feel about that? So you can talk about it outside of the bedroom, read books together, watch movies together. Like, I don't mean porn. I mean like educational movies, like videos from like Betty Dotson, for example, mm -hmm. or OMG. Yes. And educate your partner, but feel you. It all begins with you. It all begins with you. A believing your orgasm is just as important as your partner's and B knowing what you like. So you can communicate that to your partner. Although one thing I will say in this really, I struggled with this when I wrote the book and I, you know, the goal of having an orgasm makes one less likely, right? The whole like, am I going to come? Am I going to come? Am I going to come? No, well, you're not going to come if you're all up in your head. So there's like a balance, right? Between believing your orgasm is equally as important and not getting so focused on it, but instead just allowing yourself to immerse in pleasure. The journey, not the destination. The, yes, exactly. <laughs> the, the, the pleasure, not the performance of it. Yes. It, it's, I think it's quite shocking for a lot of, of people, as, well, kind of women I speak to when I, I say, they say, I'm struggling to have an orgasm. I say, well, stop trying to have an orgasm. And they go, but like, what do you mean? What do you mean? I don't understand. And I'm like, well, stop trying so hard. The, the, the harder you try, the less, the less it is likely you're going to get there. What you actually need to start doing is focus on that journey. Focus on what touches bring you pleasure. Be in the moment. Kind of concentrate and bring your mind to, to the stimulation you're experiencing or a fantasy that's exciting and focus on that. And then make sure that it's the right stimulation for, new, for you, not what your friend said, not what you, the porn you watched last week showed you, but for you. Because as you mentioned earlier, every single woman is different. Absolutely. And that's where both fantasy and mindfulness come into play. They're going to be much more likely and successful. And the research backs this up to have you be in the moment in your body. And this whole, like, is it taking too long? Am I going to come? That is going to not have an or get an orgasm for you to happen. So to experience orgasm, and that's another one where language is important. I like to use the word experience orgasm rather than achieve orgasm because it's more holistic and it's an experience, not a goal. So I could not agree with you more. Oh, I, lo I love that. I love the idea of it being an experience. And I, it kind of also makes me think of, um, you know, something that Esther Perel said, which is sex is a place that we go. It's not something that we do. And that really, it resonates with me, what you've just said about it being an experience. It's a place that we go, we experience it. This, I hope, will start getting people's kind of cogs turning, start getting them thinking, particularly in, in heterosexual relationships where there is this, this pleasure gap, this orgasm gap. But if, if we were going to teach women one thing and we were going to teach men one thing for heterosexual partners, 
would it be the same thing? Would they be different based on your experience? What do you think? Oh, what, a, what a thought-provoking question. If we could teach everybody just one thing, I would say that the one thing that would cut across both is sexual communication. Being willing to say what you need, what feels good. And I also think we would teach everyone that the, and I think this, you know, I don't, I, sometimes I hesitate with this one because I, I don't want it, everything to be like, oh, I'm comparing it to the penis because really the penis is people say, oh, the clitoris is like a small penis. No, really the penis is a big clitoris. So we would teach everybody that the penis in the clitoris, not the penis in the vagina evolve from the same embryonic tissue. They both get erections. They both have erectile tissue and they're both central to orgasm. I'm so, I was going to ask you to elaborate on it because I, I think it's such a, such a strong point in normalizing the pleasure we get from both of those anatomical parts. And I love that if we were to tell everyone one bit of advice it would actually just be like you you actually all started the same you you were all the same at one point and then based on chromosomes you know obviously we're generalizing here but you know you split off in one direction or the other and so that is why you have a clitoris and that is why you have a penis and both of them actually started in the same place and they actually bring you the same sort of sensation and pleasure but we speak a lot about how the the clitoris has 8,000 nerve endings and then the penis doesn't have as many, but there's a lot of sensation in the penis. There's a lot of sensation in the clitoris. They're equally as pleasurable to be touched and stimulated sexually. So it's not about the, the clitoris just having 8,000 nerve endings and thus being a better, better version, but actually that they're both incredible parts of our bodies that can bring us sexual pleasure. Absolutely. The penis is a a big clitoris and the clitoris is a small penis. They are embryologically from the same tissue. And it's really, really important to understand that. And even the inner lips or the inner labia, those are also part from the same embryonic tissue as the, the head of the penis. So our entire vulva, most of the nerve endings we need to orgasm are on the outside of the vulva, not the inside of the vagina and letting having people understand that. And the other metaphor, I, I've seen this in social media, is expecting women to orgasm from intercourse. Sure, a few do, but it's like expecting men to orgasm from stroking their balls without touching their penis. Sure, yeah, some do. will. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, most of us need our primary nerve endings of our sex organ um, our most reliable sex organ touched. And for men, that's the penis and the penile head, especially. And for women, it's the clitoris and the clitoral hood and glands. I, I, I really just love how simple and straightforward that is, how, how normalizing that is, how factual that is. And I think that the real challenge here is then how much of a problem the brain causes in actually being able to enjoy and engage with those parts of our bodies. I mean, for you and the work that you do, you've spoken a lot about mindfulness and you've spoken a lot about communication. When you were doing your research, were you seeing that, that the way people think about sex is 
and the way people obviously they touch themselves then in conjunction with each other are kind of that's going to lead to the most difficulties that we're going to face the most frustrations that we're going to face when there's that combination of the two yeah so the combination of what you're saying of lack of knowledge and lack of yep. communication absolutely mm -hmm. i mean i call communication the other c word you know mm -hmm. just like literacy <laughs> you need both <laughs> oh that's so great <laughs> yeah definitely need both yeah i i absolutely love that i think that that's such a uh gosh say like a snazzy way to put it and a memorable way to put it i wish that we could we could get more people to tap in to our what their brains more sexually i mean i'm tapping at my head but people can't see that on a podcast <laughs> i wish I wish we could get people to tap into their brains more sexually. So sex, positive thoughts, fantasies, and so on. Is that something that you encourage people to do when you're working with them? Absolutely. I once told a client, you know, your brain is your biggest sex organ. And she laughed. She looked down at her lap and said, oh, my gosh, all this time I've been touching the wrong place. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the truth is the matter is, it doesn't matter how you're being touched if your brain's not in it. And by your brain in it, I mean your brain shut off and focused on the pleasure, focused on fantasy. And then when you're not in it, again, I say, you know, really encourage clients to think sex positive thoughts outside of the bedroom and to turn off these busy brain thoughts in the bedroom. And so I cannot emphasize enough the power of fantasy, the power of sex positive thinking, and the power of mindfulness for sexuality. And I hope that even just listening to this episode is a little bit of permission for anyone out there who's ashamed or embarrassed about this topic to start engaging with one of those three, whether it's fantasy, whether it's the other C word, um, whether it's mindfulness around sex. You know, I, I get my clients to practice mindfulness outside of the bedroom. You were talking about communication outside of the bedroom before we bring it into the bedrooms, because it's a skill that transfers across our lives to help us actually be more in the moment, experience more pleasure. And pleasure is obviously not limited to sex. Uh, eating, um, sitting in nature, we get pleasure from so many, you know, listening to music, so many different sources, but using mindfulness for sex has been found to be so incredibly beneficial. So I really hope that the conversation that we, we've had today is, is, is just going to give someone the permission that they've, they've needed. Um, it's normalized the way that they've been experiencing sex and pleasure thus far and will be a step in the right direction for them to be able to change their experience, as you, as you said it earlier. In the work that you've been doing, Laurie, when you were doing the research, were there things that really surprised you? And were there things that, you know, I'm a researcher as well. So I, I expect things, I hope for things to really surprise me, but then I also expect to find some answers. Did that happen for you during your research? Oh, there was so much that surprised me. But what really I think surprised me is how little we still know about women's pleasure and anatomy when I was writing the anatomy chapter of the book, I mean, I have some funny stories, but one of, I cried a lot because I would look in, for example, um, when I was trying to direct my artist to draw the vulva picture for the book, 
I mean, I thought, oh, that's going to be simple. Well, it surprised me how hard it was because in some books, it says, for example, that the inner lips attach in one place to the clitoral glands and hood. And another, it said it attaches in two places. And another, it said it varies. So like literally my research assistant and I, we would like, not together, but alone, we would, we spent hours trying to see what ours were like. And I, we both were like, yeah, it attaches in two places. We wrote the most foremost author who'd said it was in one place. And he wrote back and was like, oh boy, you're right. It's two. And then the same thing happened when I was trying to direct my artist to um, draw the clitoral bulbs, which surround the vaginal canal, the internal part. In some pictures, they looked like balloons and some they looked like little teardrops. Like, And again, I so little is known. That was the biggest surprise of all. I'm I'm so intrigued that you had that experience because in some medical textbooks the clitoris doesn't feature, and and anatomical books out there for women or sex ed books for kids it doesn't feature, and just hearing the difficulties you had and actually speaking to I find it quite intriguing that it was a man um, who who mm-hmm. first yeah, first described that it's that we met at one point. I, I'm really intrigued by that because that says to me again, there is such a gap in knowledge and we are immersed in it on a daily, hourly, minute basis. And yet there's still discrepancy. And it makes me think of the fact that the full structure of the clitoris was actually only discovered in 2005. That's just over 15 years ago. That's That's not a very long time. And clitorises have been around a lot longer than that. It's absolutely mind blowing. You you were speaking about the bulbs, and I I will actually in the show notes attach a picture, uh, attach a link to a picture of what the clitoral structure looks like because what you are seeing when you look in a mirror or when you look at your female partner is kind of just like the the head of a the the kind of if you bend your finger the tip of the knuckle that's all you're seeing and underneath that there's so much structure there's so much happening but yet again knowledge. We need to educate more about this. And coming back to a point you made at the very start of our conversation, you you spoke about the need for education to change. It's the same here in South Africa. I've worked in Australia. I've worked in the UK. And it has to change everywhere. Really, really everywhere. We need a more comprehensive, sex-positive, permission-focused, pleasure-focused information or education around sex, not just sex negative, danger, risk, reproduction. Absolutely. I truly could not agree more. And actually, I had a a trip to the Netherlands planned right when the pandemic was supposed to hit. Well, not supposed to hit, right when it hit, I was supposed to go to the Netherlands is what I'm saying. And the reason I was going to go there is they teach all this in their sex ed. They teach about sexual pleasure. They teach about sexual communication. They teach about consent. They teach about the clitoris. And guess what? Not only is the research bears it out, they have a smaller orgasm gap than we have, and they have less. They, they're the country. There was a multinational study. Women there, you know, they they found I think it was twenty eight percent of women there say they struggle with orgasm as opposed to like forty five percent in the U.S. Although I think it's even higher. 
And I think education is key. And at least in our education system, as Peggy Orenstein, the author of Girls and Sex said, it's as if the clitoris doesn't exist. And I think, you know, I honestly think that if we taught about the clitoris, we would not only enhance sexual pleasure, I think we would decrease sexual pain and decrease sexual assault because so many if we empower women that sex is something for their pleasure, they are going to be less likely to tolerate pain, which 60% of women are experiencing and saying nothing about. And they're going to be more ready to, um, to see sexual coercion because they'll be expecting sex for them. So I think this goes way beyond just sexual pleasure. I think it could help a lot of other sexual and political problems that we have in the world for women. I think that's such a powerful point for us to end on. I I would love to have continued talking to you for 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 many many hours and I'm very grateful for the time that you gave up for me today. And where can people find your work other than your incredible books, which I'll obviously give links to? Um, actually, let me just say this, that you're one of the coolest and best people to follow on Instagram. <laughs> I, I repost your Instagram posts all the time. So can people engage with you on Instagram? Is there somewhere else they should be kind of finding your work? Oh, well, thank you for that kind, those kind words. And you can find me on Instagram. Uh, Pinterest, Twitter, and Facebook, and of my website, all with the same handle, Dr. Lori Mintz. That's my website, www.drlorimintz.com, and you'll find links to all my social media there, links to buy my books. And yeah, Instagram is the one social media platform that I think I have the most fun with. So yeah, if you're going to pick one, definitely Instagram. So thank you. Yeah, I, I I highly highly recommend following Laurie. It's a it's it's a sex education in and of itself, and the kind of sex education we we all should have gotten, but we can all now get. So, Laurie, thanks again for joining me. It's been such a treat. Well, it's been a treat for me too. Thank you so much for this interesting and engaging conversation across the across the world, basically. This episode was sponsored by Desire. Desir believes that sexual health is not just about the latest sex toy, but about using products to improve one's overall sexual health and well-being. For 15% off, use the code FORAFRIEND. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to this podcast and continue learning about some incredible and fascinating topics that we need to know more and talk more about. You can subscribe and follow this podcast on your favorite platform. And if you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be grateful if you would rate and review it. Do you have a question you'd like to ask for a friend? Reach out to me via my website or Instagram and I'll be sure to include it in an upcoming episode.